Hello, friends and colleagues. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music, and the timely theme for our show today is pedagogy. Soprano voice teacher and author Dana Lentini is sharing her new book release, Teaching the Child Singer. Vocologist Heather Nelson is talking about neuroscience and how it can assist us in better lesson pacing. You are going to meet our new technology expert to Kenya Battle and how she successfully supports her families in navigating online lessons. And our good friend Shannon Coates is helping us with the art of teaching specifically specifically why we need to talk less and let our singers sing more. You will level up your pedagogy skills after listening to this episode of the Full Voice Podcast. Welcome, friends and colleagues, voice teaching professionals. I do hope you are keeping well. It is a It is a crazy busy time of year as schools and studios are gearing up. And I know you know this. It is a year like no other as we all navigate new teaching challenges. Uh, Whether you are teaching online, in person, or heavens both, perhaps. Um, We have... We have such important work to do, Uh, creating um, fun, educational, uh, safe learning opportunities for our students and students of any age is so, so important. So we have four incredible voice experts on the show today. I'm so excited. And today's show is brought to you by all the love in my heart. Uh, Seriously, you've got this. There are amazing opportunities right now for all of us to serve our families and our students. And we are here to help you, whether you are using our resources or just listening to this podcast. I am truly wishing everyone a fantastic, inspired year of teaching. For many, many years, the practice of teaching children to sing was discouraged. You may have heard or perhaps even participated in some of these myths associated with working with young singers. Many of us who are teaching now were discouraged to start singing lessons until we reached a certain age. Well, We know better now, and there is plenty of research and child-friendly pedagogy to back up the teacher working with young singers. My returning guest, Dana Lentini, has been an advocate for the young singer. She is passionate about teaching prepubescent voices in her private studio. Today, we are talking about her new Hal Leonard book release, Teaching the Child Singer, Pediatric Pedagogy for Singers 5 to 13. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend, my colleague, Dana Lentini. How are you? I'm great, and I am thrilled to be here today to chat about my book. Thank you for having me yet again. Well, I am so excited, and full disclosure, my book, I got it yesterday, and it's already paged, it's it's already got dog ears, it's already got highlighter, it's already got post-it notes all the way through it. It is such Thank a you. wonderful resource, and this has been... 
This has been a long time in the making. Can you let everybody know how long it took you to, to I'm going to say birth this book. Birth this book. Well, not counting all of the years of teaching that is actually the content of the book, but the actual writing, the, you know, sending out the the book project to the editors and all of that stuff was two years. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that it is here. So we're talking about teaching the child singer pediatric pedagogy for ages five to thirteen. And now you are a returning guest and we've had some amazing conversations. And your expertise is just has been part of my resources as well. So this is just, I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long. Um, so let's start. I would like to start with the changing, and, and it is changing, conversation about working with kids in the private studio. So it it's, wasn't that long ago where it was discouraged and where people had a lot of, there's a lot of myths right there. So can we can we start with that and, and talk about how it's changed and how the resources are there now for teachers who want to do this? Yeah, so it is. It's those myths. And, you know, I kind of open the book with that kind of ideology, where it came from a little bit. And um, I really firmly believe that you know, we teach the way we're taught. And I talk about in the book about the master apprentice model. So if we took voice lessons and we started like me, I started when I was 13. And I think I even remember back in the 70s when I started taking voice lessons, I think even my mom at that time, I can almost hear her saying, you can't take voice lessons until you're older. Because it's dangerous. I don't know. Maybe, like, maybe it's just like I've heard that so many times. I think it was my mom. But, um, I, you know, there is just that myth out there that it's dangerous and and that you have to start when you're 13. And and so, but where did that where did that come from? And I really, I really believe that it it came out of the fact that in the 20th century, when conservatories became the training ground for vocal students at the university level, that we could maybe trickle that down a little bit to our 24 Italian art songs and some (laughs) golden agey musical theater things that we could maybe eke that into teaching, you know, down to the 13 year old age, maybe because that's when they're a little bit older and wiser. But you know, piano teachers um, violin teachers, lots of music teachers have been teaching young children for a long time. So why has it become that voice was, you know, not appropriate for young children? And I really firmly believe that it's because nobody knew how. I just I sure. think that's that's the biggest answer right there. Nobody knew how, and and but there were piano teachers. You know, I I still see them a lot in our forum too. That they're piano teachers that they 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 put in a little bit of singing into their piano lessons, mm-hmm. and that's great. Mm-hmm. But then there's still all these voice teachers out there that go, oh no no no, I don't do it, and they don't do it because they never learned how. Um, when they took pedagogy in college, let's say for my myself, I took pedagogy in college. I had a fabulous 
um, training in vocal pedagogy. I went to USC, which is where William Bernard um, taught. And so there's that whole lineage there. And so as an undergrad, we were getting really wonderful scientific vocal pedagogy. But, mm. you know, they're being taught by university professors and university professors never taught a seven-year-old how to sing. So they're not teaching us how to teach a seven-year-old how to sing. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I've just learned it um, as I've gone along and raised children and taught in the classroom and worked with children's choirs. And and so I just took all of that with everything I'd learned as a voice teacher and as a singer and kind of just combined it all to put some of these myths to rest. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I too went through a, a lot of that with the, when we started researching the full voice workbooks, I reached out to university level vocal pedagogues and they were not helpful <laughs> at all. And it's so refreshing now because we can have these conversations and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, academics who've done work in this, uh, in this field, you partnered, you partnered with Geneva Williams from the UK. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, cause your, perf- your, not performance, your presentation for the Nats convention, uh, you did this amazing presentation with her. Can you tell us everybody how you connected with her? Yes, I would love to tell you that because it was back when I started my master's um, in vocal pedagogy in 2014. I really wanted to delve more into understanding pedagogy for children. And there was nothing out there. And I dug and dug and dug and I found Ginevra's book. And I read it cover to cover like in a, in like a day or two days. And I was just so fascinated and so thrilled by this book. And my master's thesis was actually her book and, and talking about her book and also um, Kenneth Phillips's book. So Kenneth Phillips's book and Geneva Williams's book were my two books that I used um, in my master's thesis. And so then I, I just, I think I had seen Ginevra then on, on Facebook someplace and I sent her a message. I was just like, oh my gosh, you're so, you know, I love your resources and your book. And so we started talking and then we had a Zoom call and then we just really connected. I mean, I just, I feel so um, empowered by the things that she has said. I mean, she's such a brilliant scientist and researcher, and she's just such a lovely person. And Mm -hmm. so um, I was already working on my book. And so I was telling her about my book. And so she just had so much wisdom to share with me on so many levels. Um, I was, you know, thrilled to also find out that her husband is a classical guitarist and composer. <laughs> My husband is a classical guitarist and composer. Your husband is a, cl- is a guitarist. I mean, I mean, yeah, he falls under more? the jazz. He's a jazz <laughs> I know, but they're and composer. <laughs> we need to, we that need to all get together one day. <laughs> right. They can all jam. 
Yeah. So I, I reached out to her in that we, we had many conversations and then, you know, one thing just led to another and, um, you know, she's got that real scientific and, um, real in-depth look at the physical aspects of the laryngeal mechanism for the Mm -hmm. child singer. And then I have that real, um, practical in studio experience. And so that's what we wanted to combine for the Nats, uh, the Nats, not the Nats chat, the Nats, um, session. So it was just really great. It was so fun to work with her in that, in that way. We were a little scared when it went online because, you know, there's, how is this going to happen? Because <laughs> you know? sure. we were going to be a live session. And, and so, but it all worked out so great. And, and the feedback and support was so tremendous. You know, you just always feel like when you provide these content, this content and these resources, you just want you just want it to be helpful to people. And I, we just had a really great response. So it was really wonderful. It was an incredible presentation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know so many teachers had posted how positive it was. And I know that your presentation has really opened up the minds and the possibilities for a lot of teachers. So my next question would be, How does a lesson for a singer, let's say under the age of nine, look? What does that look like uh, for somebody who's new to this? What what does a lesson, a child's singing lesson look like? Um, That's a great question. And And so in my book, one of the main components of my book, you know, the first kind of outline is how I got there and why, you know, I believe this, um, this pedagogy to be an important aspect of teaching, of teaching of singing. But so I lay out my five-step system of the importance of um, just the lesson pacing for Mm -hmm. a lesson with children And so beyond then the five-step system that I lay out, I also um, lay out age and ability levels. And so what you're asking about ages nine and under, I actually kind of break them into three different categories. I have ages five to seven, which I call the Mm -hmm. discovery singers. And then I have ages eight to 10 that I call the learning singers and then 11 to 13, the growing singers, because they are all very different, right? A nine-year-old mm-hmm. is really different from a six-year-old, <laughs> really yes. different. Um, and, and so that's one thing too, again, that for the college level singers, you know, the difference between a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old is not that big of a difference. There's no difference, right. really. Um, <laughs> there's difference because they're different people, but they're not different because of their age. Um, but for children, that is really, really different. So I do try to break down those age categories in the book. And But let's say, you know, a discovery singer ages 5 to 7, you could get a 9-year-old that maybe that nine-year-old really needs to have that foundation that a discovery singer, you know, some, some kids all come to you at a very different, at a, a, with different needs and different ability levels. You know, you could have a very precocious six-year-old who has perfect pitch 
and you could get a 10 year old that is pitch challenged and has having a really hard time matching pitch. So, mm-hmm. um, that's why I try to break down. I, I, I still think that anybody that's, you know, in the learning stages of early childhood into their early teen years, I think I really find that structure of the five steps to be all encompassing because, you know, it helps lessen flow. It helps Mm. with distractions when you have different Mm. parts of a lesson to move into, but it also helps offer that comprehensive learning environment, you know, of, of inserting the theory and oral skills into the lessons. And, and so, um, so for me, I, I try to break down in the book these three different categories. I, I try not to qualify them by just their age because, like I said, you could have somebody at a different age that needs a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I don't know if that answers your question. but <laughs> Oh, no, it does. I think it's very yeah. helpful. I love what you talk about in your book where it's not – we're not just – we're not just focusing on the voice. We're not just focusing on the instrument. When we're dealing with children, we are looking to develop their musician skills just as much as we are about exploring the voice. Now, I'm going to be devil's advocate here. There's teachers that talk about that. Well, that's not a voice lesson. What do you say to that? I think that everything that we do as teachers is developing work ethic. We're developing um, the voice along with the human and, and, and that mm. on a very humanistic level. That's why we study the arts, isn't it? Um, because it makes us more empathetic. It makes us better citizens. And so, you know, I, and I guess the difference might be, and going back to what we were talking about earlier about the myths around teaching children. We all know that there's those children that are on Broadway or those elite children that are singing on these America's Got Talent or whatever, Britain's Got Talent or whatever the talent shows are, right? That they're elite kids that are already, they just have this amazing sound and this amazing voice and they need vocal coaches. That's not what my book is about. It's not what I teach. I teach to those kids that they just love singing. And Mm. I was one of those kids. I just liked singing. I wasn't into sports or dancing. I loved singing. I was drawn to it. And I wasn't just already this gifted child that I opened my mouth and and it came out, right? So I feel like that's where we've lost that, oh, well, then you need to take piano lessons to learn how to be a musician. And, but some people, they don't want to go out and get a piano. They don't want to go out and rent a violin. They don't want to take that. They want to sing. And so, and I think that all music lessons can, can be that, you know, I think when my kids studied the violin, all of my kids studied violin at a young age, they learned so much. And I learned so much as a parent. And it just, you know, so I I just feel like it's, Music lessons and art serves so much more than just um, than being an elite singer, I, I guess, mm. you know. Oh, I love it. 
I love it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's another interesting thing. You know, I've been teaching for almost 30 years. And through those years, as I think about where my past students are, the most interesting thing is I don't have a list of Broadway accomplishments and famous students, not to say that my students aren't all wonderful, because they are all wonderful. I've got former students that are heart surgeons. I've got a former mm. student who's a judge. I've got former wow. students that are doing amazing things in computer science and so many things because, and they still, I love it because so many of them are still singing, but they're singing mm. avocationally. And not every lesson that we have to teach has to be formulating um, a singer to become, you know, famous. And, and I think yeah. it's okay to Career just teach balance. voice lessons. Yeah, I think, you know, I, and, and with children especially, children, there's so much that they're formulating. I have kids in the arts. I've seen kids that are extremely gifted on the violin. I've seen it in dancers too, that they get really burnt out. And then all of a sudden, this amazing little dancer that my daughter was friends with, who was winning all of the competitions, quit. Now she's golfing. She, she couldn't do it anymore because wow. it got too intense. Because I mm -hmm. think when children are in something so intense, they don't even know who they are yet. So I yeah. do love to incorporate in my lessons so much of that. That's why I don't like to always limit when a child comes to a voice lesson and they want to sing one song or one genre or one style of singer. I think it's really important that we introduce them to all of the, the selection that vocal literature has to provide because they can find so much about themselves and mm. discover a lot. And that's, I guess that's, maybe that's the mother in me. I just love nurturing the whole child through the voice lessons. I love that. And I think there is a lot of nurturing that happens in, in the, it, with the younger singers as they are, they are obviously discovering their voice, but learning about themselves. And I think it just, it's, it can be such rewarding work. Yes, it is rewarding work. <laughs> For sure. Now, one of the challenges that I know that I have and that comes up a lot with a lot of questions that we get is, is repertoire. Choosing a age-appropriate repertoire, choosing repertoire, and also introducing our students and their families to a wide variety of music. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you approach that? I know you talk about it in, in great detail in the book, but how is your approach on that? Well, I think the biggest question is when I hear people ask about what song, there's never the why. There needs to be the why. Why are we choosing a specific song? Because I think there needs to be more intention on why we're assigning a song and what we hope to accomplish. You know, we can't just go through the motions. Um, mm -hmm. Again, if a child is just really determined to sing um, specific repertoire that maybe isn't something that we think is going to serve them to reach their fullest potential. Um, maybe it's a song that we feel like they're straining or it's a pop song that they feel like the, the lyrics are inappropriate. Um, you know, there are those challenges um, and those picky singers. I have one particular singer. She's been with me for a very long time. She's very, very picky. Um, so finding songs for her is very challenging. But I think we need to have intention. And that's why in the book, 
um, within those different age categories, I tried to give a good example of about six songs, six, seven songs. I don't remember how many I put in the book, but of some examples. And while, you know, we don't have to stick to, oh, these are the only songs I can do for this age group. It was more of an example of, okay, in this song, this is what a child that's age five to seven that's just discovering their voice should be focusing on. They should be focusing on learning how to express the text and they shouldn't have songs that have too much text. So I tried to give a little bit of an outline of what the intention is for that song. So maybe if you have a singer that likes a specific type of music or something, you can find a song that they are connected to and think of it in that same way. So we're having an intention and we can work with our students, you know, and, and again, yeah, I, I hear these topics come up a lot of, oh, we should let them sing whatever they want. Well, they don't get to go to math class and tell their math teacher what kind of math they want to work on. And they certainly don't get to tell mom and dad what they're going to eat for dinner and that they're not going to eat any vegetables. I mean, we need a balanced diet and we need mm-hmm. we need to. But so, again, maybe we can end the lesson with singing that song that they love so much. But then we use this other song over here for that intention of, okay, this singer really needs to develop more head voice singing, or this singer needs to work on breath stability, or, you know, a big thing with young kids, maybe this kid needs to really work on articulation. So we're going to get them a song where they have to really work on articulation and, of course, expression. So we need to have more intention in mind, I think, when we're picking our repertoire. And I think we can all find a balance. Um you know, there's our favorite song, my favorite song, my favorite musical, um, Mary Poppins. And there's that great line in Mary Poppins, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And so <laughs> I think, you know, if we can just kind of sugarcoat a few things, but then and have that intention, I think we can solve a lot of repertoire issues. But teachers then need to do more homework. They need to do more homework on what the intentions are with the singer and what the intentions are for the teacher. What, what's the goal? That's, that's great advice. Well, Dana, I want to, I want to thank you uh, for your uh, leadership in this industry and your inspiration and all your hard work. You are, you are pivoting and, and changing mindsets and opening up so many opportunities, not just for young singers, but for teachers to open up their studios to a whole new demographic. Such rewarding work. Thank you. We will have you back. You are one of our experts. We will have you back on the podcast to share your your teaching tips and strategies. But uh, thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to put links to your information uh, as well as to the to the book where people can purchase the book. So if you want to check that out, please check the show notes. And one one last thing before you go. Um, Uh, there's so many teachers out there with questions trying to get started in their teaching studios. Do you offer any sort of mentoring or consulting? Do you work with teachers in that fashion? I do. And thank you for asking that because actually I hear from a lot of voice teachers myself seeking some more in-depth advice. And I am just, you know, working on putting together a little mentorship program. I'm actually right now in the 
initial stages of taking on my first apprentice teacher who's going to apprentice with me um, this um, this whole school year from September to June. Um, she's just a young college student. She doesn't get any pedagogy in her vocal um, curriculum that she's working on right now. So I am just so excited about, um, you know, just this way of working with teachers to continue to help, help continue this, just this whole narrative of working with children. I think it's really it's such a gift to, to not only help teachers because it trickles down ultimately to mm. children finding their voices and their artistic souls. And that's what really makes me happy. So yes, I am working and mentoring with teachers right now. And um, so I'm just, just loving working on all those different levels, right. Of working with the students that I have and working with teachers and helping them to um, become better teachers. So Oh. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Podcast. We will put all of we will put all of Dana's information onto the podcast, the show notes. So please, if you're looking for more uh, guidance and help, just reach out to Dana. Dana, thank you so much for your time and being a guest yet again on the Full Voice Podcast. Teaching the Child Singer is available worldwide on Amazon and Sheet Music Plus. You can find Dana at borntosingkids.com. Becoming an exceptional teacher in any field is understanding how humans learn. My returning guest, vocologist Dr. Heather Nelson, is unpacking some neuroscience and helping us to understand how we can apply this knowledge in our teaching studios and classrooms for effective lesson pacing. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Heather Nelson. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be back. It's so much fun. Now, Heather, uh, Heather and I have had uh, several conversations. And one of the things that I love about Heather is how you are so passionate about neuroscience. Indeed, if we really think about it, all of our singing initiates in the brain. And so if we think about how the brain works, we can understand how the voice works a little bit better. And plus, it's just fun. I mean, brains are cool. <laughs> I love it. I love, I love your, uh, your, I follow you. I follow Heather on the social. She always has these fantastic little tidbits of information. And I'm so glad that she can come onto the podcast and share some of them with us. Today, we're talking about learning or what the brain needs in order to, to learn. So I'm, I'm going to let you unpack this for everybody. Correct. So if we think about what we're really doing in the studio, we are working with students uh, short term and working memory, giving them concepts and asking them to eventually make them into habits. But that requires moving things from short term or working memory to our long term or habitual memory. And that is a process that uh, neuroscience kind of understands, <laughs> you know, brains are very <laughs> complex. And so there is some controversy about what I'm going to tell you, but um, uh, 
from all the things that I've learned and I've read and I've been taught myself, these things seem to be pretty evident that they are needed for the brain in order to learn. And those three things are time, repetition, and sleep. And so I'll break all three of those down. Uh, We as voice teachers in our studios, we have very little control over the sleep part, but Mm. uh, because we cannot tell our students, um, you know, when to go to bed at night, but we Mm -hmm. can, we can model it. And sleep seems to be very, very important for um, the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a, is a part of the brain kind of stuck there in the middle that, um, seems to be important for, it's kind of the conduit for moving those things from short-term memory to the long-term memory. Long-term memory is stored in lots of different places in the brain. It's not just in one place, but if we think about our brain as having lots of little file cabinets around where that long-term stuff is stored, and then we can go pull it back anytime we want to. The short-term memory is kind of like the post-its that we stick on our monitors on our desks, and as soon as we're done with them, they go away. And so a lot of stuff, the short-term memory is just kind of hanging out there, you know, for a little bit until the brain decides that it doesn't either need it anymore and it just recycles that post-it or it writes it down in a more uh, permanent form and sticks it in the filing cabinet. And so the hippocampus seems to need sleep in order to do the process of writing things from those little memory post-its and sticking it into a file in the filing cabinet. So as teachers, again, we can't necessarily, you know, be in our students' homes and tell them to go to bed at a certain time. We can model it. We can talk about it. And we can tell people that this, your brain does need sleep in order to learn. The other thing is repetition. We have a little more control over this in the studio because we can mm-hmm. repeat things. We review things. We, um, we encourage practice. Practice is where students repeat things that also helps to move things from short-term memory into long-term memory. And so, again, we can't necessarily dictate our students' practices or practice habits, but we, we can pace things in such a way in our studios that we are repeating things regularly and bringing those concepts back around again to review. I like to think about spiraling when I'm thinking about writing lesson plans. And Nikki, I think your books are great at this. If you think about learning in not a straight line, but as more of a spring shape, Every time you come back around, you're hitting something that you've already hit before, and then you introduce something new, and then you come back around to something you've hit before. And so you're, you're alternating new information with reviewed information, and that, that repetition is very important and helpful for learning. I had a choral director many, many years ago that would always encourage us to sing or read the lyrics of our text right before we went to sleep so Mm -hmm. that we would remember it in the morning. And I always was like, why on earth would I be reading this at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night? That's just, but now (laughs) she must have known something. This is like decades ago. She must have been on to something there. I love that. And whatever happened, you know, that got stuck into your long-term memory. So now you can pull it back and remember it. <laughs> yeah, I but, probably um, do remember those songs. 
Yeah, there's there's some um, there's some thought in neuroscience. I was just reading up on this the other day because I'm a nerd, but um, uh, there's some <laughs> thought that dreams actually have a lot to do with the learning process and the moving, Ooh. you know, things that happen during the day from you know through that hippocampus through that conduit into long term memory. And we don't we don't remember a lot of our dreams. You know, most people do not anyway. Um, we tend to remember some of the weird stuff, <laughs> but oh. Um, seems to be that dreaming has has something to do with with uh, um, coalescing long term memory. So I find that to be very interesting. That's but of so course, we got to be asleep if we're going to dream. So you know, get a little <laughs> shut eye. <laughs> okay, so we've got sleep. We've got repetition. And then the third thing is time. This is what we have the most mm. control over as uh, voice teachers because we can pace things so that we are spending adequate time. To your point where, and I, I am often guilty of the same thing, I want to, I want to teach my students all the things. They, they need to know right. all the things, right? But um, unfortunately, that sometimes works against our brains, that works against the neuroscience. We really do need to spend adequate time on a concept, particularly if it's a new one, um, so that we're not only introducing the information, but we're giving the students and giving us time to work with a concept and mm. um, really get that working memory involved and kind of, you know, f let things figure, you know, get figured out. Um, brains need time time to mull things over and we need mm. time to get muscle memory going and we, we need time to be able to not only ask the questions but know what our questions are and if we kind of you know just blow through things too too quickly we miss that element of time and so if you think again about your lesson pacing you maybe have three main things that you want to do in the course of a half an hour and then work with those concepts in multiple ways. Um, Love it. I, I like to think about how many senses can I bring into this concept? You know, can I bring in sight, sound, touch, movement, all of those things? And so you're really only work, you can work with one concept, but work with it in multiple ways so that you're spending adequate time and um, getting a lot of the brain involved. And then um, you're not overloading the short-term memory because again, think about if you've got just your post-its are just covering your monitor after a while, mm. they don't mean anything. There's just too much. And so they just get, thrown out and we just need to focus on one or two little things work with it in multiple ways and then spend adequate time and then repeat I love that all of the information is so helpful and I'm just thinking you know how unique each student is and this information can really help us address maybe that student that is progressing slower or is not retaining the concepts that we are giving. Mm -hmm. There could be things, there could be things within our control, but there mm -hmm. also could be things outside of our control. Like if a child is not getting enough sleep or if they are, you know, they're not getting that type of um, uh, information re repeated for them that they need. And I know that it's very frustrating because teachers often go, okay, what am I doing wrong? And how, what's wrong with the student? So it's, this is mm -hmm. really fantastic information. I do appreciate it. So 
Dr. Heather Nelson, I'm going to put links to all of your website and to your socials. Thank you so much for these compact yet powerful little lessons. This is just so helpful. And we will have you back again for, uh, for another uh, feature on the podcast. Excellent. I do hope that it is helpful. It's really, really fun to be able to talk about these things. You can find Heather Nelson at drheathernelson.com. Even before the COVID crisis, technology was an integral part of our teaching studios. Now, there is always a learning curve and finding the time, money, and, well, patience to adapt to new technologies is always a bumpy road, especially when trying to get our families on board as well. I am so excited to introduce you to Takenya Battle. She is a talented musician and an amazing singer, a savvy businesswoman, and she rocks the studio technology. She's going to be helping all of us do the same. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, our new friend and colleague to Kenya Battle. How are you today? I'm doing so well, Nikki. Thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, we're doing okay. We're doing all right. Well, I'm I'm so excited to have you. Um, now, I have been following you, and we have actually known each other for quite some time. We followed each other on the socials. Um, your studio, your teaching studio, Kenya's Keys, uh, you're a voice teacher, a piano teacher. Actually, you're a multi-instrumentalist. I am, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So can you tell everybody, first of all, let everybody get to know you a little bit. So how did you get started with music, and how did you grow your teaching studio? So how I got started with music was in the fourth grade, my cousins and I were all the same age. We all wanted to take the same class and we all chose piano. So oh. we ended up in piano class, fourth, fifth and sixth grade. I was the only one that stuck with it. Here's where things got surreal. So my piano teacher in the fourth grade actually ended up being my colleague and my peer because I went to college for one thing, got a big fat D in chemistry because I was going as a biology major. <laughs> Here I am on a full academic scholarship. I'm like, wow, this is great. I won't have to pay for anything. And I'm on the verge of like <laughs> flunking out of school my very first semester there. And so I had to think like, what has been there for me this whole time? And the answer was music. And so that's how I ended up becoming a music education major because I got a D <laughs> in chemistry. So I ended up going back to the same school district that I grew up in. And my very first piano teacher was now my peer and my colleague. Wow. Wow. We, we have to thank the, uh, the chemistry teacher for giving you that D because uh, I think you made the right choice. <laughs> Big time. Um, it, was just, it was just a very surreal moment because recently my very first piano teacher just retired. She wow. just retired it. And she reached out to me because she saw one of the videos that I had did for, for our students. We had a virtual recital. Mm -hmm. And if, if Corona came in March, we had a virtual recital in May. Wow. And my teacher saw that video and she, she emailed me. She said, I just finished crying into a pool of tears. I'm just so proud of you. And then the <laughs> next sentence was, can I come work for you? Wow. So, 
like, what? I was, I was just like, so after I had my puddle of tears, I was like, yes. So now we're moving forward. And my very first teacher <laughs> is now getting ready to be my employee. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, I I want to I want to talk a little bit prior to COVID, prior to COVID. Tell tell everybody how your student like tell everybody a little bit about your studio. And then I really want to um, explore how you so beautifully transitioned to the virtual online platform. So let's start before COVID. Tell, tell us about your studio. Sure, sure. So before COVID, students could expect to come here for their group lessons because I teach primarily group piano lessons. And then, of course, voice is done as a group as well because we want to have opportunities to create harmony with others. <laughs> Mus- music doesn't exist in a vacuum and we have to have the opportunities to create and collaborate with one another mm. um, in real time. So um, my studio is set up. It's just a large upstairs bedroom, but there's like five, six full-size keyboards in here wow. and there's space for parents to sit. And my desk is in here. It's a, it's a huge upstairs bedroom. So um, just weekly lessons, about every quarter, we would have a fun recital. And I don't even call it a recital, just a performance opportunity is what mm-hmm. I call it. Because um, some of my students come with a few hangups and you want to make sure people are comfortable. So I think some of the most fun ones that we've done, we've done like an 80s theme recital. <laughs> we've done one in a coffee shop where we raised funds for a nonprofit that makes music lessons more affordable to everyone. We've done um, fundraising activities where we, uh, again, partner with local nonprofits. And instead of people paying their their registration fee to me, they would bring a donation for one of the local nonprofits. So everything would kind of stay right here in the city. Group lessons, that's my primary thing. And we incorporate technology throughout those lessons already. So if I had 100 students, I don't have 100 students, but if I had 100 students with me, about five of those were totally online. So about 95% of my lessons were in person. I had like 5% online. These, this would be people living in, in Maryland, in Utah, in uh, Delaware, in Florida, just, just all over the United States. And I'm not even sure how these people would find me, but they found me. <laughs> and I would just give them the same experience, but in an online format. So that must have made things a little easier for you when the whole world shut down and we had to transition to online lessons. It absolutely did because I was already familiar with delivering instruction in an online format. So I've tried many of the things that have been available to us way before Corona came. So Skype was one, FaceTime was another, Zoom and you name it. I have probably tried it or am getting ready to try it because I'm curious about how it works. I love that. I love that. And that's um, now I have been following your studio online forever. And I do. I've always been inspired. Your students are having so much fun and you share wonderful things on your social media profiles and in your studio profiles. And I want to thank you for that because I, I, it's truly inspiring. Now you're also transitioning because you have this passion for all things tech. You've really started to reach out and, and work with teachers. Um, and I can't tell you I can't tell you how excited I am for that because I know 
a whole bunch of people, maybe even myself, who have been easily overwhelmed by technology. And of course, coronavirus forced us all to embrace new technologies, but you are now helping teachers with that. So tell us a little bit about this new enterprise of yours. So this new enterprise involves primarily making it easy for music educators to reimagine their online music education environment. It doesn't have to be stale, dry. It doesn't have to be uninspiring. It doesn't have to be plain Jane. Now, if that's what you like, go right ahead. Go right ahead. But we want to make sure that we're still able to deliver those pedagogically found um, components that ensure that student successes, student successful outcomes are still being made. We still want to make sure that students are having that success, whether we're right there in front of them or if they're on the other line of the internet. For someone who's just getting started, so someone who's new to the online experience, where do you start with them? What do you, if, if somebody comes to you and they are like, please help, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know where to start, what, do you, what, are, what are your recommendations? My recommendations are to basically start where you are, use what you have, and then do what you can. So if you're, let's say that your threshold for technology, you have a, a walking person. So you're just walking around. Like, hmm, <laughs> let me check this out and see what's going on. Oh, look, that looks awesome. Let me see what it is. But I want to give people the opportunity to walk in and be successful. Mm-hmm. So if all you have is your laptop or your phone and you know, if your laptop is older than your the last kid you have, like mine is. <laughs> uh, my laptop is from 2013, but the kid came in 2014. I want people to just use what you have. There's no need to um, spend, 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 spend. Not at not in the beginning. That's something you may look at later. So as long as you have a good internet connection, a platform for delivery and a framework of instruction that works for you, you should be good to go. Mm. That's bare minimum. That's so inspiring because I think that's the first thing that people think is, oh gosh, you know, how much money am I going to have to spend? And and that can be really overwhelming. And I know certainly for those of us when we almost overnight had to transition, those were really uh, stressful thoughts. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I also want to recommend you don't have to buy brand new either. Refurbished works just well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you check those popular sites from those popular brands, check to see if they have something refurbished. Or if you go into your local big box stores, you can go see if they have some open box returns. Oh, that's a great tip. Yeah, it's a, it definitely saves you money. So if money is a factor in making those decisions, again, Check out your big box stores for those returned items. And usually it's just like somebody got it and they didn't like the color. So they decided to bring it back. Oh, it doesn't match my grand color scheme of life. (laughs) They'll they'll just bring it back and there's nothing wrong with it. And oftentimes you'll find like a $20, $50, even $100 discount over what you would normally pay for sticker price. With the big boxes uh, stores, they also have warranties. So you're not... You're not at a risk if uh, if it doesn't work out. Like they will take care of you. 
Absolutely. I was going to say the exact same thing for those refurbished items. They still come with the warranty and it's coming direct from the big name places that you're used to going to anyway. So they already have a reputation of reliability and trust. Oh, that's a great idea. Now, um, so let's say we've, we've got, we're using what we've got, but now we're trying to maybe level up a little bit. If so, what should teachers consider when looking to improve or optimize their online setup? You want to optimize your online setup. I highly recommend checking out the following, the following things. Um, if you haven't seen what open broadcast open broadcast software is, or if you don't know what Minicam is, M-A-N-Y-C-A-M, or if you're unfamiliar with uh, StreamYard, those are some platforms I, I highly encourage you guys to just check out for yourself and see how you can take it and use it in your studio. Um, for me, Minicam allows me to have these various shots. I know people are like, how do I get the overhead shot of my hands? How do I get that? Minicam, you set that up ahead of time and it can be used on multiple devices at the same time. So you can pull in the shot from, say, your laptop that's already had the built-in, already has the built-in webcam. If you want to tape, like seriously, you can use technology without using what you, just use what you have. If you have to tape an, an old iPhone or an old, I'm, I'm really big on Apple products, but if you have to tape an old phone to the ceiling with um, with some of that, uh, what's that little tape? The, the stuff that it doesn't scuff up your walls or it doesn't scuff up. Oh, the painter's tape? Yeah, like either the painter's tape or the, the like command strips kind of thing, like you pull it in it. Yeah, it, so if you just use stuff like that, put it in place. You're not going to use that phone anymore. It's, it's the tech, you know, the phone is old after six months. Anyway, you're not going to use the phone anymore. Take that phone, recycle it, tape it for your overhead view. If you want to go so far as to buying a boom mic stand, boom mic stands are the bomb. Buy your boom mic stand. And then you put an adapter on the end where the microphone microphone would normally go and you attach a webcam. I love, um, if you want to talk about brand specific things, it really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the brand. What matters is, will it get the job done? So I don't want people to get hung up on brand names because they, they all are coming with the same technology these days. Right. Well, I like your idea about using recycling some of our older equipment. It doesn't have to be the newest and the latest and old phone. That's a great tip. And Going back to like the many cam and the and the broadcasting software, let's just talk about that because I think that might that's a new thing for a lot of teachers. It's not essential, but it can really help with the visuals of the online. So I I know now is many cam for PC or Apple? Is it specific? It's both. It's user friendly oh, for both. So okay. score one for many cam because everybody can use it. <laughs> regardless of whether or not they're PC or Apple. Nice, nice tip. Um, how, when you had to transition your studio uh, to online lessons, how challenging was it uh, with families and helping them? How did you, how did you um, assist your families in getting the most out of the lessons? That's a really good question because for me, when 
when the pandemic came our way, it just so happened to be spring break. Uh, now, I, I think I have kind of mastered the art of procrastination unintentionally. <laughs> it was spring break. So I was spring breaking. I was here at home, luxuriating and doing nothing and kicking <laughs> in with my family. Right. And then it got, it got to be about Wednesday. And I was like, OK, let me let me figure something out. Right. So um, what I did was um, my main my main thing in mind going forward was I wanted to make sure that my more mature students mm. could access whatever platform I chose. Uh, I figured if it was easy for them and if it was easy for my youngest students, then I, I've got a winner. I've got right. a winner. I didn't want people to have to click on 5011 things to get mm. to me. Right. I just want them if I want them to be able to do it from their phone. I want them to be a, able to do it from an old device. I want them to be able to do it from the the latest device. So if I could mm-hmm. find something that worked for everybody, regardless of um, their level of comfort when it comes to technology, nice. I knew I had a winner. Nice. And I, I really had two two students in mind. They're both sixty plus, and they're both piano students. And when I saw when I saw Miss Betty. Miss Betty came through on, on the line. She's like, I did it to Kenya. She's got like this really thick. I did it to Kenya. I made it through. I was like, yay, Miss Betty. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm like, if Miss Betty can do it, I've, I've got my winner. Oh, and that's so lovely. She loved the experience. She oh, loved wonderful. it. And I love her too, but that's another story for another time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, so I ended up going with StreamYard primarily for that reason. I knew if Miss Betty could do it, I, ha- I had a hit. I needed something that would allow my group students to still come as groups. Mm-hmm. I needed a way where I could see everybody at the same time. I needed to be able to mute people. Just something where if I do it once, it's kind of wash, rinse, repeat. It's done. Yeah. So I trained my families by... I, I tested it out with them live. I'm like, hey, y'all, because nice. I have a little Facebook group for my families. Hey, guys, I'm testing this thing out. I just want to see if this works for you guys. I know most of us are on spring break. Let me know what you think. And, and that was just me talking to them live. And they, I made a Q&A session. I'm like, I started, oh, really? I started um, yeah, just a Q&A. So they would kind of type in their questions as we were going. And I would be like, mm, I don't know the answer to that, but we'll find it. hope to find it real soon. So from having a conversation directly with my families in, in our Facebook group and through text messaging, a few of them and a few emails, I really try to keep uh, multiple lines of communication based on you, you, you get to know your families and how they prefer to talk to you. Uh, I ended up going with StreamYard. And what I did was I made a, a Web page that just has here it is. Click. Just click. Oh, Wow. And that's how they come to lessons. And they already, they know like, okay, this is my link. The end, they show up. Oh, brilliant. It sounds like you have an incredible community with your families. You've really created a a supportive system for everyone. They have come through for me in, in ways I never expected. Seriously. Um, I like to have fun at my lessons. And if I'm not having fun, then, you know, something may be wrong somewhere. But that's usually not the case. I just had um, my oldest recently ended up 
going to the hospital for one thing. And that one thing turned into surgery. And then that surgery turned into a five day hospital stay. I have families like dropping by the hospital with my favorites. You know, I have families dropping by the hospital with, with lunches and dinner. I was like, my mind is blown. Hmm. I didn't know they loved me like that. I knew I loved them. But I didn't know that they loved me like that. And it, it still, it brings tears to my eyes still that to, to know that I've cultivated a community of people who understand what reciprocity is. And so mm. the offer that I made to them, because I missed everybody's lesson right. that week, except for like the first two, I missed everybody's lesson. I said, you know what, guys, I just don't feel right. And, you know, I would broadcast this openly all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you guys a little bit of a discount on next month's tuition because I missed you guys' lesson. And you guys know I don't miss lessons. You know, sun up, sun down, thunderstorm, hailstorm. I'm not missing lessons, but this was something special. And what ended up happening once I made that offer to them, the majority of those same people, hey, girl, don't worry about it. Wow. We understand that was something that was beyond your control. We're just glad that he's okay. So to know that I've, I've um, it took it, it took years. It took some time to kind of weed out the families that aren't as much of a reflection of what I'd like to see here. Mm-hmm. And it's not always perfect, but I would I definitely say hands down, I, I have found my people, and my people have found oh, me. I love that, I, it, and I love the word that you used because I think that's something that for teachers to reflect on. You used the word cultivate, and. I, it really, I do, I believe it really comes down to us and how we communicate and how we, we engage with all of our families that determines the culture and the, the, the experience in our studio. And, and I also agree with the finding your people is so essential. So I'm, I'm very inspired by, by your story. And and now is your, I have to ask, how's your son doing? Is he doing all right? He's sending me texts every day. Mom, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> he's just fine. Good, good. And okay, he, good. Yeah, he's here. still eating first and second dinner. So we're good. He's good. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. I um, Now, you are going to be... Uh, um, you're going to be one of our featured experts throughout this season. You're going to be sharing your top tech tips and helping all of us to make peace with new platforms and new technology. And I'm very excited. How, uh, how can teachers who are, are taking that big step to really become one with their technology, how can they reach out? How can they find you? You can find me at Kenya's keys on all social media platforms. And if you'd like to speak with me directly, there's a link in my bio on Instagram. Just reach out to me and I'm here. And if you get a chance, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shine a little light on you to Kenya. You have to hear this woman sing. I was, I was, it was during the lockdown and I was on my phone and this beautiful woman sang a spiritual and you brought me to tears and I was just so moved. Your voice is, is just lovely. So, so when you're, when you're see- seeking her out, go, go check her out, go check out her voice. It's pretty Yeah, sweet. My, my IG lives. Those are, those are what I call, what do I call those? My Saturday vibe lives. I love it. I love it. Well, to yeah. Kenya, 
Thank you so much. And I'm so excited. We're going to have you back and you're going to share all your amazing tech tips and, and get us all on board and, and curious and, and learning new things. Um, and uh, I'm so excited. And thank you so much for being part of our expert panel. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right, you chatty Cathy's. This next segment is for you. How much are you talking in your studio? Have you ever thought about how much of your lesson is speaking to the student rather than letting them sing? Now, I know you have best interests at heart. You want to share all the things and jam it into a 30, 45, or 60-minute lessons. And full disclosure, I struggle greatly with this too. My returning guest is Dr. Shannon Coates. She is passionate about helping teachers level up their teaching skills. Today, we are talking about less talking and more singing. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend and colleague, Shannon Coates. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I love how you are out there helping teachers. I love your tagline. It's teach your face off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And um, it's actually changing a little bit in the near future. Ooh, what's your new tagline? Voice and the art of teaching. It's going <gasps> fancy. I know it's going oh, fancy. I like it. Yeah, don't worry. The the um, yes, the hashtags will always still be there. There will always be <laughs> hashtags galore. But the fanciness <laughs> is coming in a little bit. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, you know what? Rebranding is always important. Um, so today, voice and the art of teaching, uh, we're talking about, well, we're talking about all the chatty Cathy's out there. And that's me. I'm the worst. I am the worst. I talk far too much. I actually have a little post-it note stuck on my on my piano that says, shut it. <laughs> Love that. (laughs) Love that. We're talking about less talking and giving our students the opportunity to sing more. So tell us why we need to to do this. So this is something that as I started to work more with uh, beginning teachers and with teachers who, and lots of experienced teachers as well, but as I started to work more with teachers and be um, you know, come in to help mentor teaching and to work with teachers to help improve their teaching to get even better at what they do. Um, this is something that I started to really notice. And as well, something that when I was doing uh, my training at university, that my mentor teacher talked to me about pretty frequently, which is when we talk, we're, we're, I mean, it comes from such a good place, right? We're teachers. We want to explain the thing. We want to make sure we're communicating accurately. We want our students to understand what the concept is. And so, and, you know, especially in my case, I tend to be a pretty social person. So I really just want to talk. And um, that can really impede the ability of the student to learn because singing is a, is a motor skill. So in order to attain a motor skill, you actually have to do the thing. 
you can't just talk about doing the thing and you can't, it's not enough to understand the thing. So even if I explain that to you and tell you till you're blue in the face, we're both blue in the face and you know all the things, that makes no difference in terms of your motor skills and the acquisition of the skill because you haven't done it yet. So this is something that happens pretty consistently uh, when I'm working with teachers. And I call this the um, sing to speech ratio in the lesson. So this is this is something where we're aiming, right? We're aiming to have like a 20 to 80 speech to sing ratio in the lesson. And so often we're, we're way over 50% in terms of speech, so often. So, and it's not enough to say to teachers and to say to yourself, just talk less. I mean, it is enough if you already know how to talk less, but it's not enough if you just say, okay, don't, don't talk as much because what do I cut out? Where do I stop? What's the line? So I came up with a couple of practical ways to actually cut down that or get that sing speech ratio a little bit better. Here are the three things. Uh, one is to give a concise directive and then allow the singer to sing at least three reps of the exercise or at least one verse of the song or a verse and a chorus of the song or even the entire song without giving another directive. So zero directives except maybe again or you know, nodding or smiling, something to let them know that they can keep going so that they get the time to actually do the thing. So, so often, especially if we're beginning teachers, so often we hear them do the exercise. So maybe they're doing a scale, they're singing a scale. We hear them sing the scale, they sing the scale once and we say, okay, no, this time make sure that you don't do this, 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 and this, or that you do do this, this, and this. So then they sing the scale one more time. And then you're like, okay, so this time do this, 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 and this. They haven't had enough time to process the first thing that you asked them to do, right? So give them one very specific, simple directive and then allow them to have that time to actually sing it through several times, three, four, even five times to get that, to, to actually start to do it in their own bodies. Um, that's how we acquire motor skills, by doing it. That's just the way. Um, the next one is to give specific feedback. So make sure that your feedback is not, that was good, that was awesome, that was great. Make sure that your feedback is really specific and short. So the feedback, we often end up with like, that was great. That was good. That was awesome. Which doesn't allow, again, this is about how we learn. It doesn't allow or draw the attention of the learner or the student toward what the actual thing is that you're saying is good. So sometimes we then say, oh, that was good. And here's the blah, blah, blah. And here's the blah, blah, blah. And here's the blah, blah, blah. We end up with all of these other things. And really all we need to give them is the inhalation was quieter. Good. The, the tuning was better. Good. The, you, you kept the, I don't know, you kept the legato. Good. Your whatever, whatever that one specific thing is, just that give it to them specifically, and that will give you, it will make you a better teacher because you're losing, using less words and you're making yourself be very precise about exactly what is happening in that singer. 
So you're listening very precisely, not just an overall good, as well as then directing their attention to what the specific thing is in a very short, concise way. The third thing is, every time you hear or have the desire to say, because the reason is, here's why, anything like that, that wants to come out of your mouth, stop. <laughs> Just stop. Oh, that's hard. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It, it doesn't have to be that way for the entire session. But if you record yourself, record, I, I challenge you to do this. It's awful, but I challenge you to do this. Record yourself teaching a lesson and literally map out the times when you're talking and when the student is singing and just see what your sing to speech ratio is. And if that sing to speech ratio is really skewed, is really not the way you want it to be, like I said, though, I guess in this case, 80 to 20. So sing to speech, 80 to 20. If it's not aiming toward that, or even if it's only like 50, 50, something like that, these are the things that will help you to get back on track. Does it mean that you always have to stop yourself when you want to say a because? Of course not. However, if that is your main way of teaching and your main way of explaining, um, it's going to end up with your student not singing as much as they need to sing in order to learn the thing. <laughs> so there are other, the, the one thing to do about that because explanation thing as well, and this is sort of like a bonus round, is to the concepts that you find yourself explaining on the regular, give yourself a two to three, literally write down a two to three sentence explanation that you can memorize and or throw on your piano or have there somewhere so that you can just say, oh, I'm explaining the reason we need to have a silent inhalation now. And I've got this three sentence explanation that I can use rather than going into my full on five minute explanation because I don't know what the words are right away and I'm not entirely sure what I want to say. And are they like, you know, am I communicating accurately? And so we start to talk more, get that three sentence explanation going for those concepts that you find yourself explaining on the regular. The other thing to do is to get yourself a template list of links to go to. So I have one of those for um, straw foundation. I have one of those for um, uh, for <laughs> muscle tension dysphonia, like not muscle tension dysphonia, for, for um, self-massage uh, things. I have one of those for... Um, uh, ah, for um, ear training, uh, exercises. Uh, I have one of those. So I have a, just, I have a bunch of lists, templates with links in them to explanations for things that I don't need to explain in my lesson that I can just send them to look at. Why do I need to spend the 20 minutes doing that in the lesson when they're there to learn the skill, not to, not necessarily to get the information, right? They're there to get the information, but in a really concise way that leads them to learning the skill. There are exceptions to this, of course. Uh, you know, I, I work with a lot of voice teachers and so often we are having that discussion. So that's that's an exception. And many times we, you know, you'll work with an, uh, uh, you know, a, a singer who is, who actually sings 
better if they understand all of the things, like who actually wants to know all of those things and is is kind of in their head a little bit about those things. But that can be a double-edged sword. If you're, again, if they're learning all the things, that's fine. But do they have to learn them all in the lesson? Mm-mm. Probably it's better if they get the actual motor learning going in the lesson where you can be there to guide rather than learning all the things in the lesson for their head, which they can get off the internet. (laughs) Or, right, they can get that in, there are lots of other places where they can get that information. Um, And if you are able to give them some good direction toward where that information can be found, then perfect. That's, that's fantastic. That's part of your, your job, right? So those are the three ways plus a bonus round. <laughs> I love it. Those are so helpful. Thank you. You know, it's, uh, it is challenging because, you know, we have this, this intimate space and we, we want to share all of the information. And, but there is a part of us, and this is something I'm really bad for, we want to share like a life story. Like one time when I was in college, this is how my, I, I would always do this. And I'm, I'm trying so hard to not do that and just give them the opportunities that you know what and that is one as well that I've never put on an official list of ways to like get the lesson more concise but that I do have in I have a rubric that I use when I'm working with uh, beginning teachers and especially when I'm working in um, you know in a in a voice ped class I have a rubric that I use when when we're working together um, and that is one of the things on the rubric is uh, being careful about keeping the uh, the experience of the student, the experience of the student. So as soon as we start to talk about ourselves and our experiences, we input onto the student an expectation of what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like, what the outcome is going to be, all of that, right? We And, and it's not that we shouldn't have that kind of relationship with our student where we're um, we're able to empathize and we understand what they're going through. That's not what that's about. But we we need to be really cautious about saying, it's going to feel like blah, blah, blah. You're going to have this sensation. And I remember when this happened to me and I was doing this, this, and this, and here's what worked for me. So those can be really useful, but we just need to be really cautious about how we use those. Um, we can We can we can kind of imprint our experience onto the student and then it doesn't, it doesn't become, uh, it's not as easy for the student to, or for the learner to have their own experience and to, to have their own sensations and to really develop what, uh, what their own process and to understand what's happening in their own body. Um, Yeah. We sometimes stifle that a little bit in our students when we, you know, when we're, working that way again it's not necessarily a bad thing (laughs) but it also then engenders a lot more uh speech in the in the lesson right so we get a lot more talking going and beautiful relationships developed that's not a problem it just becomes perhaps not as great for the learner Excellent. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for sharing your uh, teaching and pedagogy um, strategies. It is so helpful. And uh, you're helping all of us become much, much more mindful in our instruction. Thank you so much. My pleasure. As always, my pleasure.
You can find Shannon at her website, shannon-coats.com. And if you hurry, and I mean hurry, you can register for her Formant Free Pedagogy Weekend Intensive. It's this weekend. Check out her website for all the details. A very special thank you to all my wonderful guests on the show today, Dana Lentini, Heather Nelson, to Kenya Battle, and Shannon Coates. Visit the show's show notes for more information about our guests. Now, next time on our show, my guests will be Eden Castile and Wendy Jones. They're talking about their experience testing the low latency technologies and sharing their teacher takeaways. Karen Michaels is talking all about using live video on your social media channels. To Kenya is sharing her all-time favorite music learning apps. And we start a five-part series with Michelle Marquardt DeVoe, all about starting your own private studio business. Visit our website for fun and educational voice teaching resources that make kids smile, laugh, and sing. And check out our new single song downloads for your studio, classroom, or choir. As always, I am wishing you inspired, inspired teaching and happy singing. Made by Canoe Music Productions.